1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Amanda Joyce Hall. On today's show, we speak with Dr. Sharice burden stelly about her new book, Black Scare, Red Scare, Theorizing Capitalist Racism in the United States. The title is out today with the University of Chicago Press. Dr. Stelly is Associate Professor of African American Studies at Wayne State University, and she is a member of the Black Alliance for Peace. She is the co-author of W.E.B. Du Bois, A Life in American History with Dr. Gerald Horn. And she has co-edited two books, Organize, Fight, Win, Black Communist Women's Political Writings with Dr. Jody Dean and Reproducing Domination on the Caribbean post-colonial state with Dr. Aaron Kamugisha and Dr. Percy Henson. Stay tuned for the conversation about Dr. CBS's first single-authored monograph, Black Scare, Red Scare, Theorizing Capitalist Racism in the United States. Dr. Sharice Bardaselli, also known as Dr. CES, welcome to the show and congratulations on your new book. Thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm happy to be here in conversation. Well it was such a pleasure to read this very important book. Um, I know this is this is a text that many have eagerly been waiting, like myself, um, and the book really double birds on so many useful concepts to help us understand the early 20th century and the political repression that animates the structures that people and movements are forced to be walked with today. So I want to encourage all of our listeners to get this book and to really study it because, will um, we wanted to cover all of its valuable content today, but it is worth really coming through and meditating on since Dr. C. G. has carefully thought through and traced the connections between anti-communism, anti-blackness, exploitation, the US empire. Um, and she mobilized many archival sources, the writings of valuable, I mean, the writings of radical thinkers and intellectuals um, and close readings of commission reports, government documents, movement documents, and much more to pull this off. But without further delay, let's get into our first question. Um, Dr. CBS, what motivated you to write Black Scare Red Scare? I know this is a different topic than your dissertation, so tell us about the intellectual trajectory of
2: yeah, so I definitely touch on the relationship between um, anti-Blackness, anti-radicalism and anti-communism in my Ph.D. dissertation, uh, which was titled The Modern Capitalist State and the Black Challenge, Culturalism and the Elysian of Political Economy. Um, but there was much, much more in my dissertation. So this isn't really a dissertation book, but uh, my dissertation research is really what started me in thinking about um why is it that the United States is hostile toward uh, Black people? And why is it that the United States historically has been hostile toward radicals and radicalism? And then how do these hostilities mutually um, inform each other? And so um, in that, again, in my dissertation, I was looking at sort of anti-Blackness and uh, anti-communism. And so that kind of developed into these concepts of the Black Scare and the Red Scare, reading books like Gerald Horne's Black Liberation, a Red Scare and Ben Davis and the Communist Party, some works by Robbie Lieberman, um, Ellen Shrucker, et cetera. And what I found in those texts is that either the Red Scare was, was theorized really well, and in the context of Gerald Horn, he mentions the Black Scare and talks about um, the ways that um, anti-communism was used, especially after 1954, to really continue anti-Black racial oppression and to discipline the struggle for civil rights. But he doesn't really develop the concept of Black scare. And So I thought, um, you know, I can continue on um, his interrogation along with, with uh, other scholars of this connection between um, Black oppression and um, radical repression, um, but then give it a sort of, you know, some conceptual meat and then to really kind of delve deeply into what that looks like in between um, world war one and the early cold war. Um, I was also interested in how radical blackness um, brings together like those two scares. It brings together um, again, the U S hostility toward black folks and toward radicals to kind of create this uh, ultimate uh, um, scepter, uh, excuse me, ultimate specter of destabilization and so uh, those are some of the kind of issues and, and thinking that animated my interest in, in writing about this topic. Excellent.
1: And for our um, listeners who might be um, unfamiliar or just starting to learn about um, U.S. history and you know just starting to understand new concepts in black study, um, can you tell us what the Black Scare is? What is the Black Scare? What is the Right Scare? And how are you arguing that these two ideas mutually reinforce was happening to racist society um, and, by extension, produce all of un-Americanism and Americanism, So, way you call true Americanism.
2: Sure. So I'm just going to do like a, a little a bit of reading um, from the text for these definitions. So uh, the Black Scare, um, I argue, is the historically and contextually situated debasement, distortion, criminalization and subjection of Blackness rooted in fear mongering about black social equality, political domination and economic parity on the one hand, and the displacement, devalorization and devaluation of whiteness on the other hand. And so that's important because it's not only about a fear of sort of black flourishing or black thriving. It's also a fear about it's a sort of dialectical thing whereby the, if black people are liberated, this somehow automatically means the sort of subjection and debasement of white people Um, through the through the challenge to like white supremacy. Um, I want to talk about how the blacks here was the dominant response to racial militancy, um, the spirit of defiance, racial consciousness and eternal solidarity um, with African descendants abroad um, who were also subjected to colonial imperial aggression and oppression. Um, It construed black discontent with the economic and racial status quo as antagonistic to the United States and actually in direct or indirect service of enemies of the state because it critiqued and called into question U.S. leadership of the capitalist world system, right? It, it questioned, you know, this idea that the U.S. was um, the most democratic um, on this sort of progressive trajectory whereby a move through a spacement that black people were objectively doing better. It questioned this idea of lib- of liberalism because of the sort of author- the authoritarian. Um, violence that Black people were subjected to. Um, black agitation was seen as a potential for um, anti-American propaganda um, because it put the savagery of capitalist racism on the display for the world um, and especially racialized and colonized people um, whose hearts and minds the U.S. was competing for um, by the end of World War II as, as the world moved toward decolonization. Um, in terms of the Red Scare, This is operationalized as a criminalization and condemnation of anti-capitalist ideas, politics, and our practices through discourses of radical takeover, infiltration, and disruption of the American way of life to maintain a society dominated by capitalist elite and organized along race and class lines. And so I I use anti-capitalist as opposed to communist because the way that the Red Scare works is that communism becomes like a synecdoche or a shorthand for all different types of radicalism, including socialism, anarchism, labor, militancy, et cetera. Um, And so even as sort of Bolshevism or communism is used as a a catch-all, anything that can be construed as such is likewise subjected to what we call red-baiting or or, um, delegitimization by association, if you will. Um, The Red Scare subjected you know so-called undesirables to surveillance infiltration committee inquisitions um slander and reputation and character assassinations and a whole bunch of other techniques of harassment to undermine their right to free speech freedom of the press freedom of assembly freedom of association as well as due process um people who were subjected to the red scare were unable to make a living um they were fired and and you know um Blacklisted from being hired, um, they were subjected to um, in, illegal interrogations about their beliefs and affiliations, and just overall foreclosed from the the rights and liberties of of citizenship. Um, and they also were um, accused of, you know, promoting and kind of spreading ideas that were antithetical to the U.S. state and that were promoting. Um, the interests of enemies of the U.S. state, so whether it was the Germans um, prior and during World War One, the Bolsheviks, um, you know, the Soviet Union, etc., that any ideas that they had, even if they aligned with the Constitution, were somehow foreign inspired and were um, antithetical to the American way of life. So that's um, what the Black Sea and the Red Scare are, and essentially they they work together to make. Um, the racial order and the economic order of the United States, not only um, supreme, right, to to position that like uh, U.S. society and the way it's ordered as supreme, but that anything that deviates from it as sort of dangerous, as illicit, and as um, an existential threat to the United States. And so it's um, a combination of discursive practice, of ideology, but as well as um, um, material relationships that position those who who seek to organize their economies or organize their societies in a way that the united states deems anathema as sort of dangers and threats and this is where this idea of un-americanism um versus a true american comes into play
1: mm-hmm. um thank you for that answer what um, is the relationship? Um, I guess, and this is really to our next question. Um, what is the relationship of blackness to um uh what you call a structural location? Or you you encourage us to see blackness as a type of structural location, mm-hmm. um, because it will eliminate the relationship between blackness
0: and
1: super But can you tell us more about this? Um, and also the ways that um blackness is um it's, I'm sorry. Well, blackness as structural location is um, gendered, um, and also the ways that this location is internationalized. I have a underna- understand it as also being an international and kind the of location.
2: Yeah. So I use the term structural location to just articulate that blackness. It's more than just race. It's not reducible to a class position, even though it is constituted by class, both its own intra-racial um class dynamic as well as you know black people are overwhelmingly part of the working class we're the most you know fully proletarianized um worker uh we're, we're a race of workers if you will um especially during the time period that I am looking at and then it's not caste. so there's this whole you know there's been a re-emergence of the scholarship of of black of, of the racial um the racial realities of the United States as caste. and so it's not that and so I try to describe how Blackness is a is an economic relationship. It's also a set of discursive and um, narrative practices that both position black people in a, a sub proletarianized position within the consciousness of the United States. But then that also um, has a whole array of of legal, discursive, and ideological techniques to then um, obfuscate that position, but then to also rationalize it. And so um, I talk about um, how Black women's structural location is very emblematic of this, especially because of the way that um, they are a really captive class of both cheap and surplus labor because of the ways that they're kind of reduced to domestic service for much of the 20th century and locked out of most key industries outside of service. And this means not only that they have the lowest wages, the worst working conditions, um, the most sort of contingent and transient labor, and and are the most sort of unprotected class of laborers, but also that there's a whole set of social relations that emanate from understanding Black women as, like, constitutively the servant of others. And this is also... um, you know, compounded by the fact that black women are predominantly not only domestic workers, but also like farm laborers or or sharecroppers. But that whatever work it is that black women do, um, it's always the sort of most um, degraded form of labor. Um, alongside this, because of the type of work that black women do, they tend to be foreclosed from labor protections. And so, for example, during like the Great Depression um, during the, uh, when the National Recovery Administration was uh, establishing policies to help, you know, um, workers who were suffering during this time, Black women were often overlooked. Or it was, you know, it was argued that Black women didn't need um, wages that were on par with white women or with other white workers or any other workers at all because historically they had subsisted on less. And so because their households require less money, they didn't need to make as much wages as everybody else. And so this makes black, you know, the black woman a source of like devaluation and constantly sort of negotiating the terms of her miseration because, um, you know, because her conditions are bad, she can operate on less. But because she's operating on less, her conditions are always bad. Right. And this is just a form of su- so what this means is this this is a form of super exploitation because the most surplus value is extracted from black women um, in the work that they do both outside the home, but also the, the unpaid, the forms of unpaid work that they do inside their own homes. And even um, as domestic workers, sometimes they, you know, they would not be paid by their their um, white employers. They would be paid in clothes or in food scraps or in other sort of non um, moneyed ways that, again, um, locks them into a, a, a very sort of subordinated and exploited economic position. Um, in terms of internationalization, effectively because um, the U.S. is an empire, the way that it treats Black people at home, especially in the South, gets exported abroad. And I talk about this in the context of Haiti when the U.S. occupies Haiti from 1950 to 1934, as well as in the context of, of Liberia. But the upshot to this is that The racial logics that permeate um, the United States, especially the the so-called Black Belt or the U.S. South, begin to be applied to Black people elsewhere, even though they have different historical uh, and contextual conditions. Not least because, for example, many of the you know um, many of the sort of white capitalists who go abroad also are active in the, you know, maintenance of the structural location of blackness in the United States. And so they go they go abroad with these ideas and these practices and these racial understandings so that, for example, in the context of Haiti, it doesn't matter if you're a petty bourgeois or if you're a, a Haitian elite, because you are black, you are treated the same um, as any, uh, as a, a cackle, right? As a, a, a black, a, a Haitian um, um, farm worker. And so it imposes a, a racial regime that then again results in levels of super exploitation and hyper extraction because black people are understood to be sort of um, that, that's sort of what they're reduced to that you're, you're just this vestibule for an unlimited amounts of, of extraction and expropriation and whatever violence is needed against you to uh, facilitate that exploitation and expropriation is
1: warranted. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and we definitely see all the, uh, yeah, the internationalization of like U.S. empires, colonial scripts, um, uh, all over, all over the Black Pacific, um, but as well as, um, as well as well as in the Caribbean. Um, so that brings us to um, our next, all uh, topic, and this is a good segue, um, and that is um, uh, the the phrase that you give us, Wall Street imperialism. Well, and you argue that Wall Street imperialism is the internal logic of US capitalist racist society. So, can you tell us a little bit more about Wall Street imperialism, how it functions, how it expropriates both domestically and internationally, um, and the ways that yeah, you say it is sustained by warmongering,
0: occupation, and militarism? This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Wall Street imperialism was kind of the sort of most difficult or kind of complex thing to theorize, especially because I was trying to figure out, OK, what is capitalist racism and what is imperialism? And, and you know, part of the function of even using Wall Street imperialism is to put that back like on the table, because sometimes imperialism can be seen as like passe or it can be thought that the United States is not imperialist um, because it didn't have a formal empire. But part of what I wanted to argue with Wall Street imperialism is that this is an internal or domestic process as well as one that is that describes U.S. practices abroad. And so I talk about like five functions of of Wall Street imperialism. The first is the consolidation of monopoly finance capital and its domination of um, of all aspects of U.S. domestic and foreign policy through the partnership between like big business and U.S. government. And this terminology, Washington imperialism and big business, I get from like thinkers like Claudia Jones and William Patterson and um, Victor Perlow and sort of other uh, black or, or um, other black radicals and, and just kind of radicals in general. Um, anyway, the second function is to structure the unequal relationship between the U.S. North and South with the Negro question as sort of a, as a fulcrum. And so essentially what that means is that, um, you know, the the way that the north um, related to the south was in an imperial fashion, including, you know, at the at the um, beginning of the 20th century, southern farmers will re- refer to like northern investment as foreign investment. Right. Um, and then uh, the third function of sorry, I lost my spot. Oh, OK. <laughs> sorry, can you just edit that out? Okay. Um, So anyway, the the third function um, was to induce what I say to induce the national character of the structural location of blackness. And what that simply means is that black people in the South suffered national oppression. It wasn't just discrimination. It wasn't just, um, you know, it wasn't just sort of um, exclusion. It was it, what, how they were treated was uh, uh, amounted to, to national oppression or the, or was similar to the ways that those in the colonized world were treated. The fourth function of Wall Street imperialism was to entangle expropriation and racial domination abroad and fifth, to employ war, warmongering, and militarism as principal uh, tools of accumulation. Um, what's important here is that U.S. US um, imperialism started in, uh, internally through things like the dispossession of the indigenous, um, you know, the uh, accumulation of land and capital, Um, and the merger of banking and industrial capital especially in the second decade of the 20th century um, whereby for example uh, by the mid-1930s it was eight groups of of finance capital controlled 60 percent of industry right from transportation to public utilities um, to banking even though there was ostensibly antitrust laws right and so this represents that reality of wall street imperialism and then that internal expansion and accumulation Meant that the United States, or that that these sort of um, that big business, right, Washington imperialists, needs to expand abroad um, because they needed uh, investments for uh, and in a sort of ever widening uh, sphere of foreign commerce through which to sort of invest that capital. Um, and so, to make a short story long, Washington imperialism is an internal and external process, and war and warmongering relate to this because it's kind of like a carrot and a stick. The carrot is the investment or what's, what's sometimes called dollar diplomacy. The stick is um, the gunboat, right? The stick is the threat of invasion, um, the threat of toppling your government, um, the threat of, of waging war on your country for resources, for access to markets, um, for for the purpose of economic domination. And so uh, war and the threat of war are always that's the sort of what more often than not forces a country or compels a, a country to capitulate to US um, you know, to US um domination is this threat of intervention that is always a, a sort of um um pretext or or underwrites the the economic or financial relationships the US has, especially with racialized countries.
1: Um, well, I'll, I really enjoyed um, the chapters on Wall Street imperialism, and I found that, um, yeah, I found that this concept um, is really significant for um, kind of like I think a lot in the literature. We talk about like U.S. empire as soft power. U.S. Um, empire is like exporting culture and exporting, um, mm-hmm. exporting uh, just like expanding markets. But with this what, what your concept actually does is show the marriage between those processes, the consolidation of capital and the coercive of which um US empire and, and exploitative means that the US Empire kind of like installs and replaces. So I'm definitely eager to see what scholars in the future do with this concept and um potentially reading about, you know, Wall Street imperialism um in different uh places all around the world as um as People uh, begin to kind of like study um, U.S. empire through this lens. So the next, um, the next thing I want to talk about is or ask you about is, um, you know, one of the things I really respect about uh, the way that you think is your um, is your kind of like insistence and precision and in your assistant on you want, and the rigorous perspective that you bring to ideas that have been circulating within Black studies for a long time. Especially when it comes to terminology and the language that we use to describe social conditions, level of oppression, um, and so on. So, with that, how should we think of radical blackness as different from black radicalism um, within your within your book? And then, similarly, how should we think of racial capitalism as different from capitalist racism?
2: Yeah. And so I think it's interesting. Like, so I think Cedric Robinson's work is sort of relevant to both of these responses, because I think that the way most people know about what's called the black radical tradition, as well as racial capitalism comes from Cedric Robinson's book, Black Marxism, but specifically Robin Kelly's sort of introduction to or new kind of introduction to or or i guess it's a preface to the 2000 version of black marxism and then its subsequent republication in 2020 with an an updated sort of um, intervention from robin kelly so you know and and then there's you know the other genealogy of course of, of of racial capitalism is the south african um the south african sort of enunciation of that by people like Legacy and um, Alexander Neville and Bernard Makubani And, uh, you know, I'm 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 indebted to Peter James Hudson for um, his writings on the South African tradition of racial capitalism. Um, That's how I came to learn about it. But to me, so for me, um, what's significant about um, Cedric Robinson's iteration of racial capitalism is essentially his idea that sort of racialism um, in its modern form, kind of precedes the, the, the spread of the capitalist world economy and kind of has its origins in feudalism. Um, and so I don't necessarily share that perspective of racial capitalism. My perspective is that the capitalist mode of production and the, the inauguration of the capitalist world system as such has particular iterations of specifically anti-Black racialization that are unique to capitalism proper. Hence, I use the term capitalist racism. Um, and so it's it's thinking alongside Robinson and and sort of some of the ways that he understands racial capitalism, specifically the imbrication of of racial hierarchy and and um, economic um, exploitation. But for me, looking at the capitalist system as such, specifically U.S. hegemony in the capitalist world system, um, is important. And thus, I use capitalist racism and and you know U.S. capitalist racist society um, in reference to the United States. In terms of Black radicalism versus radical Blackness, again, this has to do with my emphasis on um, capitalism or specifically anti-capitalism. So for Robinson, you know, the Black radical tradition also encompasses a sort of metaphysical, cosmological, um, you know, cultural types of, of practices of resistance, especially emanating from like, you know, slave rebellions and marinage onward. For me, I'm li- like when I talk about radical blackness, I'm talking about specifically anti-capitalist thought. Thought that is um, critical of uh, both intra-racial class dynamics, but also class dynamics um, in general. That are looking at political economy. Um, that are engaged in processes of world making and of societal transformation. That really take seriously and that are focused on. Um, relations of of economic subject, uh, subjection and their sort of imbrication with political repression. And so um, it's really a, di- a difference in degree as opposed to kind. Um, it's sort of just being, again, more sort of theoretically precise with what I'm describing without sort of discounting or trying to Um, overwrite what Robinson or other thinkers who use, you know, tradition of radical blackness or who use racial capitalism are doing, but to just sort of be specific about what my what my mode of analysis is and like sort of who I'm thinking about and with. And then, you know, most of the people that I draw on are black um, communist and, you know, socialist thinkers and people specifically who are in and or adjacent to um, the Communist Party USA or, organizations like the African Blood Brotherhood. So really the, you know, Black um, anti-capitalist thinkers and again whose who's thought and ideas are really at the intersection of Black radicalism and state repression. And so they're thinking about bo- those things together all the time.
1: Right. Well, let's talk about one of the both. I think, I, I don't know if you named them genres of all oh, Black radicalism or actually these are like the tropes that the state um, kind of like imposes. Um, so I, I think Folks should go and read the book, but um, we also have the um, uh, kind of like tropes um, that like black, radical blackness is kind of uh, blamed um, on like West Indian anti-agitators uh, 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 and communists. Um, but I want to speak about um, some of your passages. about the the um within radical blackness, which I found very insightful. Um, So in one example, you show us that Marcus Bowery's hostility to communism did not save him from getting red-baited. And similarly, Cyril Briggs, Hubert Harrison, and A. Philip Randolph, who cooperated with the government to deport Garvey, did not save them from state repression either. Um, So all of them, through the eyes of the state, were threats to U.S. capitalist racist society, and they were punished accordingly as On regardless of their kind of like radical political ideology. Um, and then um, I also noted that later on in the book you discussed um, racial liberalism among the black middle class. And you describe that as one form of anti-communist. Um, so I wanted you to just kind of tell us about how fissures within the bottom-up movement you're seeking to challenge you as capitalist racist society actually did the opposite and assisted or fortified what you call easy communist governance and the larger Himner Cypher's political tradition.
2: Yeah. So, you know, part of what I was trying to convey there. So so this is the this is the thing about the implication of the black scare and the red scare that both are um used to undermine struggles that challenge like the pedagogy of the US state. So that includes black liberation, black self-determination. You know, black nationalisms, as well as anti-capitalist movements like socialism or communism or, or anarchism, and that they're understood as parallel and often sort of the same types of things. So for example, Marcus Garvey becomes increasingly anti-communist after 1921. Prior to that, he has spoken like um, positively, for example, about Lenin and about the Bolshevik Revolution. But after 1921, because of a series of things that happened to him personally, um, according to Bobby Hill, um, was one of the sort of foremost Garvey scholars, um, namely that, you know, Jack or Hoover tried to prevent Garvey from getting back into the country when he he went on um, an international tour to sell some shares for the Black Star Line. And and um, Hoover worked like assiduously to prevent him from being able to re-enter the United States. Um, Garvey ultimately was able to re-enter. His lawyer ended up greasing some palms. He was able to come back. But then after that experience and realizing, you know, the vitriol with which he was treated by Hoover, he sort of tried to curry favor by taking a, a sort of rightward turn and, and being more outwardly and vehemently anti-communist in in his, uh, his, his rhetoric and his approach. Um, but when, you know, when the first black um, agents of the Bureau of Investigation were hired, they were hired to infiltrate uh, both the UNIA and the African blood brotherhood. And, you know, they claimed over and over that there was Bolshevik influence within the Garvey movement, that, um, you know, that the UNIA was full of of West Indians who were uh, who believed in, you know, the communist or socialist line, who were who were uh, susceptible to to the Bolshevik line. And so there was, you know, they were red baiting the Garvey movement um, and trying to sort of construct like communist dangers that were embedded within the the Garvey movement, even though Garvey was an anti-communist. And Gar, you know, and, and some of Garvey's hostility toward communism were um they had to do with organizing. So there was a way that members of the Communist Party did seek to infiltrate the UNIA and to siphon off members of the of, you know, the the black workers who are part of the UNIA and bring them into the Communist Party. And so Garvey was very hostile towards that. Um, that sort of in part accounted for his falling out with people like Cyril Briggs. Um, And so he had sort of legitimate gripes with the Communist Party, but then his sort of championing of the, the repression of the Communist Party and his sort of discrediting of communism in general or Marxism really touted the State Department lines. And ultimately, that very logic that he was using to condemn communism was used to Condemn him, and he was ultimately deported. So he that did not make him exempted, um, you know, exempt from from that that um, anti um, anti radical repression. And then with people like uh, you know Briggs and Hubert Harrison and A. Philip Randolph were sort of different stripes of radicals who did who were involved in, for example, like the Garvey must go campaign, or who worked who literally worked with like government agents to have um, Garvey deported. The African Blood Brotherhood was still infiltrated and was still targeted by the government, um, as was Hubert Harrison, as was A. Philip Randolph's uh, March on Washington movement later on. And um, after this period, right two decades later in 1943, um, prior to that, A. Philip Randolph was still uh, was still seen as one of the most dangerous radicals. As was his newspaper he edited with Chandler, Chandler Owen, The Messenger. So again, being sort of anti-Garvey didn't help them at all because they because like Garvey people like Randolph and and, and Harrison and Silbriggs still believed in black self-determination. You know, they still believed in, in black right to self-defense. They still believed in, um, you know, black, that black people, um, should enjoy economic and political autonomy, all of which were, you know, vectors of destabilization, all of which were considered subversive modes of thought that were akin to whatever Garvey thought. And so, um, that sort of those political antagonisms between these these different sides ultimately served to strengthen or or just to to reproduce um, state repression as opposed to sort of challenge it. So nobody was exempted because they all were seen as subversives. Um, in terms of co- uh, of racial liberals, um, I write about them in the context of like um, the civil rights movement. So you know. Racial liberals, the thing about the black scare and the red scare is that it puts black people in a bind that and and so one option that they choose is to use the red scare to try to undermine the black scare. That is to say, they challenge um, anti-black racial oppression by sort of promoting the anti-radical aspects of the state by saying, you know, civil rights is not communist. In fact, we are against the communists. We are Americans. We are patriots. We believe in capitalism, um, but we don't believe in racial terrorism. And so the way that they're able to make a case for racial terrorism is by doubling down on the aspects of the Red Scare and of of anti-radicalism that allow them to sort of try to separate their program of of, um, racial equality from that articulated by the communists. But again, because there is some overlap between because the communists believe in racial equality, you're those anybody who believes in racial equality can be red baited um, because the communist believes that you know black people should enjoy the full rights the constitution and because you know um, the communists organize interracially any sort of interracial forms of organizing can be red baited as communists and so what what tends to happen is that even when the anti-communist line well number one taking the anti-communist line is effective in some cases but the, the victories and the gains are um anemic right because ultimately you need econ- you need um economic democracy ultimately you need um a, a economic system in which black people are not super exploited and if you advocate that type of system you're going to be called a communist because that is in, in fact socialism <laughs> right um on the other hand again taking taking this oath, uh, this hyper patriotic, or this Americanist, this true American line is not really going to save you because Black people are always already suspect, right? They're already considered to be prone to subversion. They're also um, automatically um, considered to be sort of primed for foreign influence. And because the things that Black people are struggling for, i.e. a collapse of of racial hierarchy, is a central pillar of the United States. And so already what you are struggling for is literally un-American even though this is something that's codified in the constitution because racial hierarchy is central to accumulation and is central to the the sort of the social ordering of the united states to challenge that is to subvert the status quo and so essentially what tends to happen then is that it um taking up an anti-communist line not only undermines your own position but then it also sort of legitimates the repression of a whole group of people who are adept organizers, who are, um, and who are ultimately advocating for a form of economic and, and racial justice
1: that is beneficial to black people. Um, right. And so I want to, uh, like, we're going to, we're moving towards our last question. This is our last question. So I want us to take um, some of the ideas that we talked about earlier on like um, and for you to tell us about how, um, the Black Scare, the Red Scare, um, and the Black Scare, Red Scare, Wong's Array, and how we should think about, um, it's early uh, 20th century moment that you focus on, um, as kind of constructing the architecture all um, that, like, Americanism, and other versus political tradition. um, how should we think about that, um, as it relates to later Cold War repression, um, and, Thinking forward to the 21st century war on terror.
2: Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of the same logics that apply to um the communist, just kind of get transposed onto the terrorist, right? So who whose rights can be abrogated? Um, who is legitimately subjected to sort of violence? Um, who are the ultimate are, excuse me, um, threats to national security? Um, you know, who are the people who whose ideas are fundamentally incompatible with the United States? And then who are the people who have a geopolitical base that can be seen as um, sort of threatening or antithetical to the United States. So obviously for communists, it's the USSR for, uh, you know, so-called um, terrorists. It's the Middle East. Right. And so the apparatus that's laid during the Cold War and the, the 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 surveillance and counterintelligence apparatus simply gets applied and updated to um, to the terrorist, especially after 1991. You know that when when um, communism, uh, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the new threat becomes um, the terrorist. But we see, but we see the same types of logics like permeating today. So, for example, um, if you look at, you know, what's happening in, in Palestine currently, you know, part of the discourse, for example, about pro-Palestine protesters is that, oh, no, they're not pro-Palestine. They're, they're supporting terrorism. And that is akin to, you know, folks who advocated economic redistribution or who advocated civil rights. It's like, no, they're not promoting civil rights they are either communist or fellow travelers. So it's a way to use this sort of ultimate specter of destabilization to criminalize and delegitimize what are effectively sort of um, forms of organizing or forms of protest or forms of belief that are not actually illegal, that are supposed to be protected by the constitution, but because they're being articulated by, or they're being constructed as adjacent to or, or an articulation of, the communists on the one hand or the terrorists on the other, they are they become effectively unprotected, right? And so persons who are labeled in this way, they're denied freedom of speech, they're denied freedom of association, they're denied freedom of the press and freedom of assembly. And so um, that um, focus on constructing sort of others from without and connecting them to, to others from within that is to say, that logic of, of sort of anti-communism, we can see it operating in many, many ways today. You know, even the discourses of like, for example, outside agitator that I talk about um, in the period that I study, we heard, you know, these these um, this sort of rhetoric about outside agitators during 2020 that, you know, China was funding some of these 2020 uprisings, that there were outside agitators coming from elsewhere to to disrupt otherwise peaceful and orderly protests and again, what's undergirding this is that, you know, Black people don't think for themselves, right? That Black people are actually okay with their their debased material conditions. It's other people who come from elsewhere elsewhere and like rile up the Negroes, right? Um, even with the, the Stop Cop City protests that are happening in Atlanta and in other parts of the country, we hear this outside agitator discourse that like it's not people in Atlanta proper. It's people coming from elsewhere to... Stir up trouble, right? So it can't possibly be that black people in Atlanta who are subjected to brutal police repression, who are the, the subjects of surveillance. It can't be that they don't want a multi-million dollar police complex in their city. It can't be that they don't want police living in their communities surveilling them, right? It's that there's people, it has to be people coming from without. Likewise, with the Stop Cop City situation, you know, painting, um, you know, they, they they many of them have been charged um as, as domestic terrorists, right? And then in, in the book, you know, I talk about Edwell Herndon, how he was uh, indicted and then ultimately um um prosecuted under the insurrection law for interracial organizing. So anyway, we see many, many parallels between um what's happening in between World War One and the early Cold War and then what's happening um um today with a sort of new regime of of kind of red scare tactics and of political repression, especially in the context of war.
1: Right, right. Mean, absolutely. And even in the point of outside agitators, it's like even when we look at the South African apartheid state, oh, well, the apartheid government would say similar things that um, you know, they were fearful of the African Americans who made to the country. They were fearful and um, And that's why they they blocked them. Um they banned them kind of unruly really, any um, type of freedom fighters on the red line. On the frontline state, um, they were just fear. Like everything was um, uh, uh, like a hysteria around this idea of the outside agitator, but also that radicalism couldn't come from within the country, Yes, especially after they banned the ANC and the PAC. Um, so it's a similar of strategy too, you see, like other regimes that are not actually like the US regime, um, but uh, mobilizing um, against uh, radicals, um, especially Black radicals. So. Um, Dr. CV, um, it has been wonderful speaking with you, learning from you today. So I want to thank you for being on the show and for speaking what speaking with us about your new book, Black Scare, Red Scare, The Rising Capitalist Racism in the United States, which is out today with the University of Chicago Press. Thanks for having me.